Let us pray. Gracious Father, draw near by your Spirit and imprint upon our hearts and our minds, our souls and our bodies, your word of truth. Imprint upon us our need for your forgiveness and the changes that come when we receive it, that we would then go out into this world as Christ has called us, loving one another, forgiving one another from the heart, and that we would ever show forth your goodness, your mercy, and compassion to the world around us. And we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. In our household, arguments abound. There are arguments about whose turn it is to throw a ball, to play with some particular toy, to get to read a book, sometimes in the past, to write with a particular pencil. Just so you know, these are arguments between the boys and Eva and not me and Rachel, thankfully. But our kids will find anything to argue about sometimes. They get so upset and all the fun ends. I mean, that's just simply how it is. Things aren't as bad as they used to be. They're a little more controlling in how they respond, but nonetheless, arguments still exist between them. That's simply how it is with a house full of kids some days. Anything can literally create an argument. Everything is essential to life when it comes to dealing with your siblings. And of course, we chuckle at this, don't we? But we're the same way. We just get frustrated about different non-essential things. We get angry over things that don't matter at the end of the day. We focus on the smallest of slights, the most accidental of offenses so easily. And we turn it into confrontations and arguments that make no difference when we get to the end of the day. We're so focused on being the one in the right that we forget to ask whether or not it matters to life. Whether or not it matters to spend time debating whether or not it means spending effort on something that ends up being so insignificant in life. We make mountains out of molehills. We make much ado about nothing. We strain at a gnat constantly. We get worked up over things that make no quid of difference at the end of the day. In Romans 14, Paul begins addressing an issue of similar substance to what I'm talking about. Here, beginning at verse 1, he begins addressing this issue of whether or not you can eat meat or if you should only eat vegetables. Whether or not you can should observe special days and esteem some days as better than others or if all days are equally holy. Apparently, this was something that was beginning to bubble up and boil up in the church at Rome, trying to understand how to apply the faith in these situations. We don't know the full background of these troubles. We know Paul addressed it over in his letters to the Corinthians, talking about meat offered to idols and whether or not it was okay for Christians to eat that meat, whether or not it was okay for Christians to go into the household of their pagan friends who were celebrating and eating that meat and wrestling through that issue here. We're not sure if it's about meat offered to idols or if it's more about whether or not that meat was kosher, if it had been killed the right way, if it had been drained the right way, and therefore able to be eaten according to Levitical laws. 
But it was an important point of debate in the church there at Rome. So much so that Paul takes time to comment on this, to address it, to talk about it. And that it becomes absolutely necessary for us to hear these words. In these course of these remarks, something comes out, a special word that we've come to apply to this situation of whether or not you can do one thing or another that Scripture does not directly address. It's called adiaphora. Adiaphora is a word that simply means things of indifference. You see, here in Rome, Paul points out that to eat meat or to not eat meat is a matter of indifference. You can eat meat if you want to, or you don't have to eat meat. It's a matter of indifference. It doesn't matter if you do it or not. Should you consider some days more important or other or all days of equal importance? It doesn't matter, Paul says. What matters is, are you doing it in the name of the Lord? These things are in the category of adiaphora. They're things of indifference, things that don't matter at the end of the day. They don't matter in life or salvation. But as with so much in life, something that's adiaphora ends up becoming a point of dispute among the people. But Paul reminds us that we must remember that Christ died for us and for those that we are debating with. And that God is the judge of all and therefore we must draw, we must interact with one another in love when considering those things that aren't a part of our salvation. And so to get the fuller context of verses 5 through 12, I want us to back up for a moment and think about one verses 1 through 5. Let me read them real quick for you. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, this is an issue between the strong and the weak that Paul brings up here. What does he mean by strong and weak? When he says one who is weak in faith, does he mean one who has hardly any faith, that just has a tiny little bit of faith that isn't very mature in their faith when it comes to trusting Christ for their salvation? Is that what he means by weak and is the strong one, the one who is never doubting Christ, the one who is able to see Jesus working in all situations, the one who has a trust upon the rock that can never be shaken, that can never be bothered. Is that what he means by weak and strong? No, it's not, actually. What he's talking about when he talks about the strong and the weak, he's talking about those who understand the gospel more deeply than others. The strong are the ones who've grasped the depth of how the gospel is applied to all of life, to the larger parts of life that we don't often think about. And the weak are those who still have a stricter conscience when it comes to certain things that they had been forbidden to do, to certain things that they knew in some situations weren't appropriate, and so they apply that rule to everything, not recognizing that the gospel allows them to make distinctions in those situations. It allows them to 
separate themselves from certain situations, but it also calls them to step into certain situations. It's not a critique of whether or not they deeply trust Christ or not. In fact, the entire assumption that Paul is making here that these two sides are all siblings in Christ. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. All of them have truly trusted in Christ and believed the gospel that Paul has presented to them, this gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone. And so the strong and the weak is not a critique of the depth of faith, the depth of trust in Christ. Because after all, we've known people who had a rock-solid faith, who could not be shaken no matter what happened around them, and yet, on certain non-essential issues, they wouldn't budge. They were stuck and, and would say, you can't do that, that's not allowable, because that's not how we've ever done anything. But yet, they were someone who just understood and applied the gospel into their lives in such deep ways that you couldn't quite step back and figure out what, where that disconnect was coming from. And we've met those weak brothers who are those strong brothers who sometimes don't have as much faith as we were expecting them to have. They seem to grasp a huge amount of the gospel and they seem to be able to apply it in so many unique ways that are right. And we see that they're right as they talk about it and as they show it from scripture. But then you notice that they just struggle. They struggle with their faith and they fall into little sins here and there, and they get discouraged real easily even though they've grasped the depth of the faith. And so the strongness and the weakness is about the understanding of the extent of the gospel, not about the depth of faith that these individuals have. And it's also not about Jews versus Gentiles. It's easy to think of it as that because we hear about meat being offered to idols over in Corinthians and assume that's exactly what's happening here or that it's all about abstaining from meat that hasn't been butchered correctly, that wasn't butchered by a Jew, and thus abiding by the kosher laws that God has put into place. I'm sure there were some Jews on both sides of the issue. After all, Paul would say that he was one of the strong in this argument, and he himself is the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jew who stands above all Jews and how he understands and has kept the law in the past, and yet he says some of these things in the law don't matter anymore. They don't apply to our everyday lives. These ceremonial things, these aspects of how to run society and how to punish certain sins and certain law-breaking, those things don't apply to us. The moral law still applies, but in these areas of dealing with meat and dealing with which days we need to observe as special holy days, those are indifferent things that we can work through and we can make decisions about together without despising or judging one another. Because after all, Paul does remind us that the strong are despising the weak. They're looking down on them. They're being embittered toward them for limiting the Christian freedom that they've discovered in the gospel. And then the weak are turning around and judging and condemning the strong because they see them as pursuing sin and doing things that are inappropriate for Christians to be doing. And so they judge them and condemn them. And Paul says, stop it. Christ has died for all of you. Christ is the master of each and every one of you. Who are you to judge or despise your brother in Christ? In so many ways, Paul is just whelling on these people for not recognizing the depth and application of the gospel for them as individuals in their community. And these strong and the weak, they're debating about eating and honoring that I've been talking about so much already. They're ripped up and concerned about whether or not they should eat meat, with some eating meat and some not. 
Again, probably because of aspects of idolatry, aspects of kosherness, whether or not it's okay to eat things that aren't butchered correctly according to Jewish custom, according to Levitical law. The idea of honoring special days, whether or not they should still maybe pursue and follow Jewish festival days and hold those days in higher honor in their daily lives. Or if all days are equally honorable and holy, is that what they should do? And those with the more strict conscience say, well, we can't eat the meat. We've still got to hold on to these Jewish holy days. If we don't, we're doing it wrong. You're required to do that. You need to do that. Whereas those who have the stronger understanding of the faith don't have as strict of a conscience and say, no, it's okay to eat meat. It's okay to see every day as equally holy and that we don't need to pursue these special Jewish holy days, these special Jewish festivals, the special days of fasting that the Jews have. We can give up those things and pursue the Lord Jesus in the places where he has put us and desires us to be. Part of the key to this is what Paul says in verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If you see a particular path of indifference that you feel is a better path, that's great. Pursue it. Look into it. Follow it. But recognize and step back and say, you know, that might not be the path that's required of every single Christian. It's not laid down in Scripture that this particular path that I am following is the one that has to be for all Christians. And it's okay that other Christians aren't following this particular path, this particular application of something. This is something important for my life that's helping me to draw nearer to Jesus, and I'm convinced that this will lead me nearer to Jesus. That's wonderful. Pursue it. Tell others about it. Help them understand why you're doing it. It may be for them that it opens their minds and up a little more to following Jesus and they say you know I think I'm going to try that and let it be an aid for my faith though it's not a requirement you see much of how we worship as Anglicans I think falls into this category of adiaphora they are things that the church has chosen to do in the past that have been extraordinarily helpful this way of worship this using written liturgy this using written prayers it's been done since the beginning of the church and it has a deep pedigree going all the way back into the Old Testament days. Old Testament days where they read the Psalms throughout the week as part of their worship as prayers, written prayers for them. And so it's grounded in Scripture in that way, but the Scripture never says, okay, you've got to have five written prayers in every worship service. You've got to make sure to sing the Te Deum Laudamus once a day and... You've got to make sure you read the Magnificat every evening before bed. Oh, and don't forget the um, Song of Simeon when he saw Jesus as an infant. You've got to say that too. Scripture doesn't command us to do that. But the church, over the long haul, over nearly 2,000 years of worshiping, recognizing the need for these patterns, recognizing that these are important things that have helped the church draw near to Jesus, has made them part and parcel of worship, made them part of the life of the church in such a way that some could never imagine letting go of those things. They would be equal and tantamount to denying Jesus. But there's many Christians who don't have that kind of strict aspect as part of their lives. 
And wisdom has led them in a different direction in how they structure their worship and how they choose to come before God and bring Him honor. They pray extemporaneously and askew any idea of writing prayers down. They might only read four or five Bible verses in their worship service and then spend an hour and a half expounding on those Bible verses and drawing from them everything that they can. They come together and they feast in their fellowship hall on a regular basis in order to draw near to each other and to know each other better as part of their worship. We can sit there and be super critical of them not having some of the depth that we have in our worship of how our prayer book is connected so deeply with various passages of Scripture and how it just brings Scripture out in our worship and turns, in a way, all of Scripture into prayers before God. And that it has shaped and molded our lives in ways that that other way of worship could never help us. But neither way is the absolute foundational requirement for faith and life and salvation. One can help some better than the other. But I'm Anglican because I'm convinced that the way of the prayer book, that way of living, is the best way to follow Jesus. I've been convinced in my own mind, and those of you who are here, I think, have also been convinced in your own minds that this is the best path for following Jesus, and we can tell others about it. We can share the wisdom we've gleaned. We can help them understand, help them recognize the differences in eating and honoring that we do in our worship that's different from them, and maybe help them see, hey, this is a good path to follow. There's wisdom in surrounding myself with this prayer book and this tradition that has been brought down and given and handed down from generation to generation to generation for nearly 2,000 years. Not the prayer book itself, but many of the liturgies are upwards of 1,500, 1,600 years old. And that we've brought it together. It was all brought together for us to lead and guide us in worship. But the problem is we become confrontational. We become people who want to dispute and argue about which one is required. And so we move into judging and despising our brothers and sisters in Christ. We look at those who abstain and despise them and mistreat them and look down upon them. And those of us who do abstain look upon those who refuse to abstain we look at them in their sin and we accuse them of sin. We judge them and condemn them and tear them down and tell them that they are sinning against God himself. Instead of stepping back and asking, is this an essential part of faith in life? Is this absolutely essential to do it in this particular way all the time? That's the question we have to ask constantly in things that are adiaphora. Is this actually essential or is it helpful? If it's helpful, yes, let's have a discussion. Let's have some lively debate about it. But let us not move into the place of judging and despising one another for coming to a difference of view on a non-essential aspect of the faith. For Paul reminds us in verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 
See, we don't pursue judgment and despising of others, of other believers because of a difference of opinion on non-essential things, because Christ is the Lord of all of us. He has died for us, and we have been drawn by His Spirit into the faith. And so on these particular things that are adiaphora, we can have a difference of opinion. It's not that we agree to disagree, because we're not really disagreeing. We're simply saying, this one thing is, is not essential, and therefore there's freedom, there's liberty to do things a little differently. We can worship in slightly different ways from other Christians, because there's freedom in arranging our worship in that way. In years past, past the Church of England absolutely imposed this form of worship on people and said, you have to worship this way if you're going to be part of the Church of England. The idea was they viewed this as the best way of worship, the way of teaching the people to understand Scripture, of drawing them into this understanding of justification by faith, something that they had never been taught to the fullest extent, and that the prayer book brought this to the forefront, that Christ is the our only one for salvation, and is by faith, by trusting in Him, that we are saved, that we come into the Father's graceful presence. And so the church imposed this on everyone, to have to worship with the prayer book because they wanted to train people. But in some ways, they overstepped what they should have done. We make those mistakes throughout our lives where we overstep what we should do, where we impose something absolutely rigid that isn't absolutely required. But we treat it as though it is absolutely required by the gospel to do something in a particular way. And we end up judging and despising our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But we must remember that we all must stand before God and give an account of our own lives. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? For you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess to God. Every knee is going to recognize, every person is going to recognize the absolute sovereignty of God at the end. Every tongue will confess that He is the sovereign Lord. And then each of us believers, too, will give an account of Himself to God, to the omniscient God, to the omnipresent God, the God who has seen every part of our lives, who knows us more deeply inside and out than we do. And we'll give an account to Him. I don't know what that judgment will exactly look like or what that means to give an account when we've been forgiven in Christ, when everything has been washed away, and maybe part of that account will be, I'm only here, O Lord, because of what you did for me in Jesus, because of what Jesus, my God, has done for me. That's why I'm here. And everything else I've done is marred by sin except for what Jesus has given to me. And so in things of indifference, in things that are non-essential, in things that are adiaphora, we have Christian liberty. And we must avoid despising and judging one another when we consider those things. We can interact with one another in love because that is what Christ has done for us. But of course, not every disagreement is an issue of adiaphora. There are many things that fall into this category. I've tried to address a few. Paul gives us meat, special days of holiness. Some might say the particular types of clothes that you wear, some aspects of that falls into adiaphora. But there are many things in our day and age that are not adiaphora. Things that cut against what God has truly commanded in Scripture as part of His moral law, 
we can't just disagree on. We can't just call an issue of Adiaphora because God has given a strict rule and commandment to deal with that. Just as the early Christians lived in a culture that rejected the commandments of God, we too live in a culture that is of similar nature, that has abandoned many of God's commandments. Things that are directly related to God's will. Things that are directly related to His Ten Commandments, His moral desire for us, are never areas of adiaphora. The book of Acts says that we hold that the Christians viewed all things in common, that they held all their possessions in common with one another. Would that mean that a believer could go in and just start taking whatever he wants back to his house from everyone else and say, well, it's my right, I have the stronger conscience here. I understand that if we hold all things in common, then everything is mine, and I'm just going to take it from you. I'm not really breaking the commandment, thou shalt not steal. We would recognize God has explicitly commanded that you shall not steal from another. And we would recognize that that's not a proper extrapolation of what it meant for those believers to hold all things in common. Likewise, God has laid down His commandments when it comes to issues of life, when it comes to issues of marriage. He's talked about what is and what isn't in those areas. We just had the walk for life this past Friday with the Crisis Pregnancy Center, and I remind you that we support that, that ministry that is striving to save children. They're striving to save those children who have not yet been born because many in our society view abortion as an issue of indifference, something that should be allowed at all times for virtually any time during pregnancy. But it's not an issue of indifference. Abortion is an issue of the moral law. We debate it in our political sphere all the time, yes. But it's not because it's something that should be debated. It is something that is absolutely commanded in the Scripture to turn away from because it falls under that category of you shall not kill, you shall not murder. It is the taking, the unjustified taking of an innocent life. And so we support the Crisis Pregnancy Center and what they do to help women find out that they don't have to pursue that path anymore. They, don't, they can find the help that they need and the support that they need to take care of their children. And if they're not capable of it, they can help them find someone who can. And that's the beauty of supporting something like the Crisis Pregnancy Center and supporting pregnancy centers around the country that many churches do is to lay that groundwork for changing hearts and minds when it comes to that issue of abortion. And so we recognize that there are commandments of God that are absolute and remain throughout Scripture for all of time. That yes, there are things that are adiaphora where Scripture doesn't give us clear witness, where Scripture doesn't say you have to do it this way. And it's okay for the church to debate about those things, to do things a little differently in areas that the Scripture does not address. But those things where Scripture is clearly addressed through the commandments, through the moral law, those are a whole different category that remain the standard for the church to this day. They remain the standard for how one lives a Christian life to help them identify what is sin and what isn't truly sin so that they can confess to God. The reason the moral law is so important is it tells us the path that God desires of us. And if we strip away the moral law and make it all adiaphora, then we never sin anymore. 
then we can't sin if the moral law doesn't remain in force because there's nothing telling us what is right and what is wrong anymore. If everything became adiaphora, then there's no more sin and there's no need for Jesus. But the moral law is not an area of adiaphora because it's a reflection of God's will and of his eternal nature for us. He has told us how to live in those areas. And we are called to confess our sins in those areas and receive the forgiveness that Jesus has bought for us on the cross, that we can turn away from sin. We can turn and confess those things that we have done wrong, regardless of what they are. Repent of them and turn back to Jesus and seek after him and know his forgiveness and be changed by that forgiveness, by the transformation of his Holy Spirit that will guide us in love to pursue the salvation he has placed in us for us to have. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.